This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be with you this afternoon once again. It's Wednesday. It's nine minutes past two, and it is Judaism 101.9, thinking about what we as Jews need to know, the basics. And perhaps today to take a little bit of a different, a little bit for our show, possibly a bit of a, an irreverent, um, if I can say that, or irrabbinical view, um, to go and look at something <coughs> a little bit different to what we are used to doing. I'd like to share with you a few thoughts about our reaction as Jews and what our reaction should be to current events, and especially to those current events when those current events don't seem to be that pleasant. What is the Jewish reaction and how are we supposed to deal with them? And certainly um, to kind of um, pose the question of, is there really anything we can do to change the state of play? And the reason that I came up with this to discuss today was actually taking a look um, on several, as I'm sure many people do, several news websites. I came across a fascinating I found it fascinating article that uh, really made me jump. It was something that is a little bit scary if you think about it and you think about the context and what this article is actually telling us. The article is headed, um, the following, it is written by an A.J. Willingham and Eric Levinson, um, and it is headed, Columbine is no longer one of the 10 deadliest shootings in modern U.S. history. Repeat, Columbine is no longer one of the 10 deadliest shootings in modern U.S. history. And they say, after Columbine, it was hard to imagine things getting much worse. At the time, the shooting at a Colorado high school was the deadliest school attack in U.S. history. But then came Virginia Tech and Sandy Hook. With 13 victims dead, it was also one of the deadliest shootings overall. But then came... San Bernardino, Orlando, Las Vegas, and Sutherland Springs. In the 18 years since Columbine rocked America to its core, the country has seen so many more mass shootings that the attack isn't even amongst the 10 deadliest in modern U.S. history. And three of the five deadliest shootings have occurred in just the last year and a half. And they then proceed to give a list, which is really, really chilling. And let's briefly touch on it, not that this is a time for uh, guts and gore and for uh, difficult things, but uh, perhaps we need to be a little realistic and think about what is actually happening in our world and what we as Jews are supposed to do as a reaction. October the 1st, 2017, Harvest Music Festival. A gunman identified as 64-year-old Stephen Paddock, fires from the 32nd story of the Mendeley Bay Resort and Casino on a crowd of more than 20,000 who were gathered on the Las Vegas Strip for the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. He kills 58 people, injures more than 500. Police believe the gunman then kills himself, and it's the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. June the 12th, 2016. Omar Sadiki Matin, 29, opens fire in South Pulse, a nightclub in Orlando. 
At least 49 people are killed and more than 50 are injured. Police shoot and kill Martin during an operation to free the hostages. Officials say he was holding at the club. April the 16th, 2007, student Xiang Hu Cho, 23, goes on a shooting spree, killing 32 people in two locations and wounding an undetermined number of others on the campus of Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. The shooter dies by suicide. December the 14th, 2012, Adam Lanza, 20, guns down 20 children aged 6 and 7 and 6 adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Before turning the gun on himself, investigators later find the shooter's mother, Nancy Lanza, dead from a gunshot wound. November the 5th, 2017. A man walks into a small church in rural Texas and guns down 26 people. The shooter, identified by law enforcement sources as Devin Patrick Kelly, is found dead after a brief chase, but it's unclear if he is killed or if he took his own life. And it's the deadliest mass shooting in Texas history. October the 16th, 1991, in Killeen, Texas, 35-year-old George Hennard crashes his pickup truck through the wall of a Luby's cafeteria, and after exiting the truck, he shoots and kills 23 people, and he then takes his own life. July the 18th, 1984, in San Ysidro in California, 41-year-old James Huberty, owned the long-barreled Uzi, a pump-action shotgun and handgun, shoots and kills 21 adults and children at a McDonald's. A police sharpshooter kills Huberty one hour after the rampage begins. August the 1st, in 1966, Charles Joseph Whitman, former U.S. Marine, killed 16 and wounded 30 while shooting from a tower at the University of Texas in Austin. Police officers shoot and kill Whitman in the tower, and Whitman has killed his mother and his wife earlier in the day. December the 2nd, 2015, a married couple, Syed Rizan Farouk and Tashin Malik, opened fire on an employee gathering taking place at Inland Regional Center in San Bernardino, killing 14 people. They killed in a shootout with police later in the day. August the 20th, 1986, which is number 10 on our list, in Edmond, Oklahoma, part-time mail carrier Patrick Henry Sherrill, armed with three handguns, kills 14 postal workers in 10 minutes and then takes his own life with a bullet to the head. Number 11 on the list is that in 1999, on April the 20th, Eric Harris, 18 and 17-year-old Dylan Klebold, killed 12 fellow students and one teacher at the high school in Littleton, Colorado. It's the Columbine High School, and the pair then commit suicide in the school library. Why I found this article really, really disturbing, of course, is the fact that what has gone down kind of in our minds as the most heinous and terrible event, the Columbine shooting, certainly we all, I think, who were around at the time remember it very, very uh, freshly in our minds, is that there have been so many others, so many similar attacks, and that it is only in terms of the numbers Only number 11 on the list in the United States, in America. And we have to start, number one, by asking ourselves a question as to why is it that these um, seemingly random attacks take place? Number two, perhaps to question why in the United States? Perhaps number three, to question um, what do we and what do we need to learn from 
the, the, these negative um, things that happen within our society. And number four, what are we as Jews on Judaism 101.9 supposed to do in order to improve the environment, in order to improve the lives of those that are around us, and in perhaps in order to improve the focus of each and every one of us um, on the fact that we're here and there is something very, very important that each and every one of us can do. And who knows? We're not here saying, well, we could have prevented, but rather saying that there's something atmospheric, there's something out there that needs to be changed, that we need to uh, bring to the fore. And, of course, I'm picking on a an article uh, from the United States, from America, and thinking about the applications here locally. Well, you know, unfortunately, locally, we kind of have, uh, in many ways, cheapened life as well. Um, you hear these reports about so many people who died in this and so many people who died in that, and it seems to kind of go right over our heads in a way, um, unless it's dramatic and it's uh, gruesome and it's emblazoned all over the press and the, the television and so on. We really just wake up the next morning and life goes on. And isn't there something that we should be doing instead of just sitting around and thinking about how negative, how bad, how awful some things are, including, of course, um, horrible things that we see within our environment, uh, whether it is corruption, whether it is behavior of politicians, whatever it is, isn't there something that perhaps in a spiritual sense we can and we should be doing in order to refocus our attention, to give us a new input, a new impetus, and to make a new, brand new impact on a world that seriously needs a lot of help at this stage. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi and welcome back. Yes, uh, just before the break there, we were posing the question about the fact that Columbine has now been relegated to the 11th spot on the most deadliest um, shootings in the United States. And what does that actually mean for us? What do we learn from the actual negativity of it? And what do we learn about the causes of it? And then, of course, what can we as Jews on Judaism 101.9 do about it? First and foremost, I think um, I'd like to... Um, propose the following, and that is that there have been many studies as to why things like Columbine uh, took place in the first place. If we go back all those years to 1999, we think about what was said about it in the uh, years thereafter. There were many studies, many different approaches as to what actually happened there, and as, I suppose, other similar massacres unfolded. Um, what was the common thread? What was the reason that these things were taking place in the first place? And why in the United States? Why in a place that is uh, the land of the free, um, a place where people have rights, where people have all sorts of um, uh, privileges that uh, they may not have in a more seemingly oppressive society? And, of course, there's some very famous studies that were done on it. Um, we all remember, of course, the study done by that famous eccentric um, journalist, Michael Moore, who came up with a fascinating finding. Um, I remember seeing certainly a little clip of it, a little snippet of it, where um, it was not put down to 
what many advocate to be the problem of gun laws and gun control and so on. But rather one of the theories was because of violence that children are watching on television. That in the United States, violence, abject violence and wanton violence is something that kids watch. And therefore, by the time a child has reached 10 or 12 years old, he or she have witnessed thousands and thousands of murders that they have seen and gory violence that they have seen on television. And it becomes very difficult for them to separate between reality and what is actually happening on television. And therefore, some of these actions and some of these things become part of their nature, part of their character. It becomes a way perhaps to sort something out is with violence. Um, they see sometimes that uh, the bad guys get away with it as well. And all of this feeds into a theory of the fact that um, wanton violence that is witnessed on television, the television has such a negative impact, such a negative effect on children's minds. Um, if we think about it and we go a little bit further, have you ever thought about the violence that actually exists even in cartoon um, uh, character uh, portrayals, things that are on perhaps on your cartoon network where there is wanton violence there as well. You know, the thwack and the boom and the bang and the explosions and, uh, uh, you know, falling down from great heights and uh, making big indentations into the ground and so on. All of these things. Think about nursery rhymes that perhaps we've even told our children about uh, blind mice having their tails cut off with carving knives, um, all, if you think about it, most sinister and terrible images for children to have to go to sleep with at night. And then we wonder why, when they wake up in the morning, we have um, kids who are somewhat dysfunctional, unable to uh, socially integrate, unable to show um, love, care, attention, and so on. But their first reaction, perhaps, is one that is negative and sometimes comes out in this type of violent behavior. So that notwithstanding, I think if we focus our attention a little bit um, more honed in, perhaps on the great American dream and think about the United States, there was a time when um, many years ago, and I remember it was a many years gone by because it was a time when I personally was in yeshiva studying in America. We heard week after week, at one period of time from the Lubavitcher Rebbe about the dangers of taking God out of the public school system. What was that all about? Well, there was a whole debate about the fact that there were prayers that were being said in the mornings in most public schools, and there was a huge campaign, particularly from liberal-minded um, Jew and non-Jew alike across the United States, who felt that we were infringing on people's rights and particularly on children's rights by having teachers um, speak to them or advocate that they should pray, um, even if it was a, for a couple of minutes, for a couple of moments early in the morning, um, because, of course, it was open to the most terrible abuse of a religious privilege or a religious opportunity. Because they argued undoubtedly a Christian teacher would be getting the children to pray in the way that they felt that prayers should be uttered in a church. If it was a Jewish teacher, it would be something that would fit in with a shul. If it was a Muslim teacher, it would be something that you would hear or the resonance of the mosque would come through. And therefore, there was a great move which eventually triumphed to get God, so to speak, 
out of the public school system. There were very few leaders at the time who um, really stood up and made a call on the fact that this was actually a very dangerous move. And I remember well, and I'm sure many others out there do too, that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe, was speaking very often and calling on all and sundry, and especially those in power in America, to not make a tragic mistake and um, literally throw God out with the bathwater. Um, because the removal of this one moment of prayer, which then was advocated that it should rather morph into or it had become a moment of silence, was an absolute necessity for children to be able to, each day at school, recognize that there is a higher authority, to recognize that there is an authority that needs to be um, obeyed. There are many, many children across the United States, as they are across this country, and I guess all over the world, who don't have um, good parenting at home. They don't sometimes, sometimes don't have parents at home raised by others um, with all sorts of difficult circumstances. And how do we teach children in a um, in a simple way that there is an authority out there that needs to be respected, not just because um, he or she is wearing a police uniform or because you might get caught doing something that is wrong, but rather that there's a God who can see everything. And no matter what your notion is of who and what that God is in your mind or in your religion, it is very important that there is this basic um, understanding and this basic um, daily recognition of the fact that there is a higher authority, there is a God in the world, there's a creator um, who needs to be uh, revered, who needs to be respected, because otherwise, warned Rebbe and many at the time, that we're going to have a complete and absolute breakdown in discipline, a breakdown in the moral fiber of the society, and I think that perhaps we can, if we really want to be very, very pointed, um, think about how so many of these attacks have taken place in the American school and university system, the very place where, so to speak, God was ousted, um, where uh, the recognition of a creator, the recognition of a higher authority was actually pushed out and look at the unfortunate consequences. It may be, and you may be thinking that this is uh, very much a, a biased kind of a view and um, kind of one-sided. And of course, yes, it's a rabbi speaking. And I'm thinking about um, the fact that, of course, everybody has to recognize and has to have God in their lives. But let's perhaps unpack it in a slightly different fashion. Let's think about this the other way around. You know, when we take a look at <clears throat> these heinous crimes and we can add to the ones that we've been talking about, the most despicable acts of terrorism that have been carried out in the name of um, of um, all sorts of uh, religious um, leanings and so on, um, both in Israel as well as um, all around the world in the name of ISIS and uh, other terror groups who have done nothing more than just uh, really, really destroy and dis destroy lives, destroy people, destroy everything that they've ever touched and ever gotten, gotten involved in. If we think about that kind of a mentality and think about how those things have morphed and how they have changed, there used to be a time when the um, perpetrators were very much operative within a very, very tight group 
it then moved to be that they could be operating on one side of the world. And because of communication, their masters or their controllers or their brainwashers could be on the other side of the world. And, you know, it seems to me, certainly, that it's morphed even one step further. And that is that uh, there doesn't necessarily need to be a controller anymore. Um, people are doing random acts of terrorism. They're going out and doing random acts of um, hurting people, of killing people, of uh, driving trucks into people, or doing all the other horrific and heinous things that um, have been done and that we've all been witness to, unfortunately, over the last few weeks, months, and years. And it got me thinking about the fact that is that not exactly what we as Jews are supposed to learn from? The fact is that there was a time, perhaps, when we needed much more kind of organizational um, instruction as to what we should and how we should be doing things. But we're at an age right now where we need, perhaps, a little bit more of random acts of goodness and random acts of kindness and the ability to be able to move into the realm whereby the same way as a terrorist, as a shooter, as someone who is going to cause harm and may be deranged or may be spiritually deranged, is going to go out and hurt people, is not our job to react in the exact opposite fashion and make sure that we are doing random acts of goodness and random acts of kindness and reaching out to the world with all the good things that we have to offer, such as um, just being charitable, just being nice to other people. Unfortunately, very often these things come as reactions. And I don't think we should have reactionary acts of kindness as much as we should just have random acts of kindness. The idea of um, reactionary is that we react to something heinous and something terrible that has happened. And unfortunately, it then lasts for a short while thereafter and we feel we've sort of done that and we run out of steam. But I think that perhaps if we just look at the message from the Lubavitcher Rebbe about prayer in public schools, I think that we are onto something about it being preemptive, about it being preventative, about it reconditioning the atmosphere of the world, reconditioning the environment, the place that we are living in, and reconditioning the way that people think. And if that is not a job that we are supposed to take upon ourselves, then I don't know what is. Um, our Judaism should not be as insular as some of us like to make it. It should not be as self-centered as many of us like to see it. And it should not be only a message that is for you and for me around our Shabbos or Yom Tov table or when we're sitting and learning our Gemara or Shas or whatever, um, but rather what are we actually doing to fix up a broken world? What are we actually doing to heal um, those out there that need healing? What are we doing to reach out to those that we need to reach out to? Was this not what Avram Avinu, what Abraham and Sora, Sora Emenu, and our forefathers, our mothers set up for us in all the parshas that we're reading at this stage? The idea of self-centeredness was not on their agenda. If Abram and Sarah were self-centered, <clears throat> I don't think... Judaism would have come into being. It was all about how do we reach out and how do we make others 
um, come into this orb of accepting God and godliness, of knowing that you can do things, simple little things that can change people's lives and that can change the balance of power, of negativity turned into positivity in the whole world. How one little act of goodness can have a ripple effect and can really tilt the balance of the whole world. How each mitzvah that we do, each positive act, each action of kindness can actually turn this whole world upside down and be there as a barrier, preventative as well as conditional conditioning to change the attitudes and to change the atmosphere of this incredible world that we live in. And hopefully we'll be able to um, just take this to heart a little bit and think about what we can actually do on a regular basis to make sure that we are doing our part as real giving, outward thinking, and forward thinking Jewish people on each and every um, occasion, each and every moment of our day. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. And welcome back. Lovely to be in your company and talking today a little bit differently about um, world events, things that happen, especially things that happen of a negative Hue um, things that happen in the world, whether they are terrorist attacks, God forbid, shootings and so on. And what are we supposed to do as Jews? What's our reaction? Um, and just before the break there, thinking about the fact that we need to do something about the conditioning of the world. I'm reminded of a very beautiful story that was told about a chassid um, walking past once um, and seeing the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe sitting on a balcony um, in the Lubavitcher Rebbe's apartment. Uh, previous Rebbe was um, on a second floor, second story, and he walked past, saw the Rebbe sitting on the balcony. Unfortunately, at that stage, the Rebbe was confined to a wheelchair, and um, he saw the Rebbe sitting there, and when he came into the shul a few minutes later, he happened to mention to his son-in-law, who later became the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said, I just saw your father-in-law getting fresh air. And the Rebbe looked at him without blinking an eye and said, my father-in-law is not getting fresh air. My father-in-law is making the air fresh. And for a moment he was possibly flummoxed, stumped by the Rebbe's reply. But yes, that was something that the Rebbe intrinsically believed in and something that Judaism intrinsically believes in. We can change the atmosphere. We can change the world out there. We can change the attitudes out there. It's all up to us. There is so much that we can do, and we think we're powerless. We're not at all. We have the most incredible strength of godly powers within our souls, that we can actually make a huge difference in the whole world out there. We can change things one step at a time, one mitzvah at a time, one good deed at a time. And you never know the power of those simple little acts, how far they go in the lives of the people who you immediately affect, in the lives of the people who see that and therefore learn from it and carry on that effect. And in the general balance of spiritual power in the world, there seems to be an attitude that um, 
evil always wins. There seems to be an attitude that negative, that wrong, always triumphs over right. Why should it be like that? That's certainly not the world that we as Jews should or ever would subscribe to. No. Right and good and positive and correct can and should triumph. And this is something that we hope and pray for each and every day in our daily tefillot, in our daily prayers, in everything that we do. That we hope and we pray that we can recondition this world and bring it to a state whereby God will say, now is the time that you deserve that Mashiach would come. And it is something that each and every one of us is commissioned with, is instructed to do, and is um, enthused with the kind of energy and ability to be able to do to each and every moment of each and every day and each and every day of each and every year and each and every year of our lives to be able to make a change in the world by conditioning the atmosphere, by, if doing nothing else, saying psalms, which we know purify the spiritual atmosphere and provide a spiritual music, which is music to God's ears and creates an atmosphere of a positive energy in the world. By doing a mitzvah, we have no idea the impact. We have no idea the impact that it has down here, the impact that it has up there, the impact on the entire world to tilt this whole world into a completely new field and into a completely new balance in a completely new way that Mashiach can and will come and that everything will be then set on the course, on the path of the kind of world that we hope and pray for each and every day. There is so much that we can do. We cannot tolerate the wanton hatred. We cannot tolerate the wanton crime. We cannot tolerate the wanton corruption or violence or terrorism, all of these things. And yet we need to learn from the way that they go about their business that um, but um, when one shoots into a crowd of thousands of people, some of those bullets are going to cost lives. And if we shoot positive energy into a crowd of people, some of them are going to save lives, and some of them are going to change lives, and some of them are going to pick up people, and some of them are going to change attitudes, and some of them are going to make people stop and think, wow, there is something more to this, and there is something that we can do. And we could start the most incredible ripple effect, which truly is played out in so many different way, ways by people who have proven time and time and time again whether we want to just focus on the Jewish world, whether were those who said that it was impossible after the Holocaust for Judaism to come back and look at where it is today, that there are more Jews sitting and learning Torah in yeshivas, in seminaries and so on in Israel and around the world than ever before in Jewish history. On the one hand, we're tapping into it and we've got that positive spin on it. On the other hand, we're leaving ourselves behind and leaving Judaism and leaving the world behind and perhaps too often separating ourselves from the responsibility that we have and the responsibility that we have on a regular basis to make sure that we set good examples, to make sure that we live meaningful lives, to make sure that we do things on a regular basis and realize that they can and they will and they should have the desired impact, not only on ourselves 
and not only on those immediately around us, but ultimately on the entire world. And so when we read an article that tells us that Columbine is no longer one of the 10 deadliest shootings in modern U.S. history, and the numbers just seem to defy any kind of logic, we as Jews have to remember that one life is an entire world. If we save one life, if we can change one individual, if we can make a difference to one person along the way, we've certainly accomplished a world of a difference. We've made a world of a difference to that world. And if we keep on doing that and we get them to be enthused with the energy and the ability and the belief that they can make a difference in one other world, well, think of all the worlds that we could continually be responsible for saving over and over and over again. It sounds very dreamlike. It sounds um, kind of unrealistic. It's much more realistic than you think. And that's perhaps why God gave us realistic down-to-earth mitzvot that we can do on a regular basis and that when we do them, And we don't necessarily see their impact. We've got to know that spiritually there is a great impact. The impact keeps on going. The impact keeps on giving. One final little thought, perhaps borrowed from some of the images from the Parshiot of this week. One of the images in the way that Hashem blesses Abraham of Ramavinu is the fact that his children will be like the stars in the sky. Ever thought about the fact that the stars in the sky science has taught us, continue to send light down to earth, perhaps even long after they have ceased to exist, because they're so far away that the light keeps on traveling to earth, and you may be looking up tonight at the night sky and seeing a star, and it may actually, according to science, not really be there. You're looking at the light that is still traveling to earth. And perhaps tomorrow night when that light goes out, you say, oh, on this day, on the 8th of November, That star stopped existing, and it's not true. The light is continuing many, many, many years, many hundreds of years sometimes after they have ceased to exist. It continues to flow down. It continues to come down to earth. Think about that as a power of a mitzvah. Each mitzvah that we do, each light that we create in the spiritual realm, continues way, way, way after that mitzvah is done. It carries on. It wasn't just a mitzvah for today. It carries on swaying and tilting the effect of goodness in this, in this whole world. It sounds, again, very philosophical. It sounds too good to be true. It's not. It is true. It is wonderful. And it is the ability that we have, the unique ability that we have to do mitzvot and to change this world one step at a time, one mitzvah at a time, one random act of goodness and kindness at a time. And we certainly can and we certainly should do that. So hopefully we'll have a great rest of the week, great Shabbat up ahead, and um, change the world. We can, we should, we must. Have a great one. See you again next week.